Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. All right, so uh, we are in uh, part two now. Part two of a sermon series we launched last week on mental health. If you've been around our church long, you know that, I mean, we talk about this a lot. And it's still not enough, but we talk about it a lot. This will be the third focused series we've done on it, I believe, in three years. And... uh, and this one's a bit different. The first one, we talk directly to people who are struggling with mental health issues. The second series, we talk to people who are caring for those struggling through mental health issues. This one, uh, we might call emotionally healthy spirituality. Because it's for everyone, no matter where you are on the spectrum of, of mental health. And it just helps us as a church stay in our lane. To be clear, at Northeast, we take a holistic approach. Uh, to mental health. Uh, that means that, um, that we absolutely believe that there are spiritual solutions that can help you navigate uh, your mental and emotional issues that you're dealing with um, on a day-to-day basis. But we also believe in medication. We also believe in counseling. We also believe in fitness and nutrition and you know, the importance of community and, and all the things. Only problem is that I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to comment on your prescriptions. I'm not a counselor, so I'm not going to diagnose your, your mental health struggle. Um, I, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. So I want to stay in my lane. I want to give you whatever spiritual direction that we might have in order to help guide you through it. That's the goal of this series. This is a series about spiritual maturity. This is a series about Christian discipleship. This is a series in which we will be challenging you to let Jesus in to a place where maybe you've never let him before, and that's your emotions. So that's the hope there. Now, if you would, would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? And uh, we're going to read from God's word here to start. Uh, I'm going to invite Rachel up, our student reader. She's going to read from Philippians 4, 10 through 14. God's word. Praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Now that I, not that I was ever in need for that I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Even so, you have done well to share with me in present difficulty. Thank you. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for his word. All right, so last week was like a formal introduction to emotionally healthy spirituality. Today I want to hone in on a part of the message last week that I felt like resonated with our church the deepest. And that is emotional trauma. Emotional trauma. In fact, last week we spent a good portion of the message talking about four points of emotional trauma that I believe the last two years in this United States of America has swelled up inside of us. Got kind of personal and some of it. And, and I don't know about you, but I just heard from so many people that, Tyler, this is what I'm going through right now. A quick review. Four points of emotional trauma I think that all of us are going through right now to some degree. The first is loss. 
loss. Over the last year or two, all of us have experienced significant loss in some way. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a cherished dream, your financial security. Maybe it's your sense of safety. Maybe it was your job. When we go through seasons of significant loss, that always turns into grief. And grief is traumatic. And that's the potential to create emotional unhealth if not dealt with. Second point of trauma is what I call extended ambiguity and uncertainty. Extended ambiguity and uncertainty. There's been nothing predictable at all over the last two years. It's been a season of uncertainty. Changing mandates, uh, lockdowns, churches closed, schools closed, businesses closed. No, now they're open. Well, they're not open normal times because we can't find workers. It's, It's nuts, right? There was an attack on our capital in the middle of it. There were weeks of grieving and protesting in our city. We didn't know if food supply chains were gonna make it, if schools were gonna be open, or if someone that we love was gonna pass away. Total disorientation. All of our rhythms and routines and our sense of control just disappeared. And that can that can transform into crippling anxiety. And anxiety creates trauma. A third point of emotional trauma this year is extended isolation. Extended isolation. We've been apart from each other more than we ever really want to be. More than we should be. We weren't created to do life alone. But when we do life alone for too long, loneliness steps, uh, sets in. And that begins to chip away at your self-worth, begins to mess with your sense of purpose in life. It steals from you one of the great joys of life, and that's friends, family. And that can be traumatic. Last point of trauma is betrayal and abandonment. Betrayal and abandonment. And I think that's the question of the hour for COVID. Who'd you lose the last couple years? And I'm not talking about to the virus. Talking about to the polarization, politicization, and seething rage out there. Was it a friend, some followers on social media, a a college roommate, an adult child, a parent? Look, when someone that you deeply love leaves you, just abandons you, or you feel betrayed by lots of people who love you, distrust starts to set in. You start wondering, who can I trust? You become relationally insecure, wondering, just waiting for someone else to leave. Like, who's going to be next? You feel disposable. You create space in relationships, new ones and old ones. And sometimes you start to seethe and and rage. You relive those conversations and you just want to lash out. It can be traumatic. Now, one, two, three, and four. Put, Put that up there again one more time. Uh, one, two, three, and four. And I, I'll, I'll tell you guys, which one's you? Or to which degree is each one of those you? Because this is what most of our experience has been over the last four years. Today I want to address that. Today I want to go in on this emotional trauma and talk about how together with God we might walk through that. Now, uh, in his book, Pete Scazzaro, which if you guys remember last week, brought it up again, this is like the book of the series. The series is built on this book. I wish everybody would read this book. I wish every group, small group, Bible study, whatever, you know, um, would, would get, the, get the workbook and do the eight-week study, and I wish everybody would get the devotional too and do the 40-day devotional. It's all that good, seriously. Um, but in his book on this, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Scazzaro writes this. 
Uh, he calls these points of emotional trauma the wall. The wall. This is what he writes about the wall. He says, for most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns your world upside down. It comes perhaps through a divorce, job loss, the death of a close friend or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled. Uh, a dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God. We question ourselves, God, and the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is, what he's doing, where he's going, how he's getting us there, or when this will be over. Our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. We feel the door of heaven has been shut. As we pray. This is the wall. And does it at all sound familiar to you? Whether we admit it or not, I think there are more people in our church right now facing a wall in life than maybe at any given moment in the history of our church. So what I want to do today is I want to bring this out of the darkness and into the light and address it. No better day to address it, to acknowledge it before God than today. I think God might bring us some healing and start moving us through the wall. Now, here's a few things you need to know about the wall first before we talk about how how to get through it. Here's what you need to know about it. First, you can't avoid life's walls. So maybe you're out there like, well, not me, Tyler. Okay, well, maybe you don't. Maybe this year has just been peachy for you and you haven't hit any walls. You will eventually. You can't avoid the deserts and the wilderness moments of life. In James chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus' brother writes, Dear brothers and sisters... When troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. Not if they come your way, but when they come your way. Apparently, James sees troubles and trials in life as an inevitability. Oh, let me remind you here, he's writing to Christians. This, okay, this means that there is not some sort of secret believe and receive prosperity theology buy this prayer cloth for $8.99 and you know call in today for a special prayer from pastor and then somehow you get out of the sufferings of life can't buffer suffering out you know what I I found I think this is true when you read the stories of scripture and the biblical heroes therein life is not like just one sort of you know up and to the right continuous progress rather life comes at you in seasons There's spring, there's summer, there's fall, there's winter. And no matter how mature or old or fruitful or deeply rooted the tree is, it still has to go through winter. Winter's inevitable. The walls of life are inevitable. Now second, here's what else you need to know about the wall. It'll damage you. It's going to damage you emotionally. Can't get around it. It's going to hurt you. This is what walls do. You can pretend like it doesn't hurt. You can like do the manly thing and like stuff it down or act tough or whatever. That's fine. I just want you to know that if you do that, you're just delaying the inevitable explosion. You're bottling up jet fuel and eventually somebody's going to light a match. And I hope it's not your kids or your spouse. 
The wall hurts you emotionally. Now that being said, I would also say this though. The wall can grow you spiritually. It can. But that, my friends, is up to you. Now, I've found there's a lot of high achievers in our church. And so here's how uh, high achievers think about emotions. I ain't got time to deal with them. High achievers look at their emotions and they think, you know, dealing with my emotions is a waste of time. But in my humble opinion, according to Scripture, choosing not to deal with them is a wasted opportunity. Because God promises all sorts of spiritual resources to us when we're walking through our walls, if we'll lean into them. But here's a list of just a few of them. Maturity. Want to grow up faster, young folks? Lean into them through the wall. Wisdom. One of the great gifts that anyone could have. Well-being. He'll work things for the good, those who love him. These are the promises of God. Look, I believe ignoring your wall is actually leaving all this good God stuff on the table. And more. So it's not a waste of time. It really truly is a wasted opportunity. Now that being said, last thing about the wall. Um, you can avoid it. Or uh, you can't avoid it. It will damage you emotionally. It can grow you spiritually. And last, you have to go through the wall. Sooner or later, you've got to go through it. You can't go around it. You can't just stop at it. You can try and ignore it. But eventually, if you want to grow past it, you have to go through it. And the sad reality is that most people don't. Now, I want to give you um, a couple strategies on how to go through it. I think these are incredibly helpful. Again, these are spiritual strategies. But before they do, I, I, okay, I got one more thing I want to explain about the wall. And this is a theological idiosyncrasy of it. Um, if you know me, these are important to me. Like some of you are like, oh no, not this time. Yes, it's this time. Check the scores, okay? Take a minute. But, but for some of you, this is going to be valuable to you, all right? This is going to be valuable to you. Um, because I have found that there's no really, there's no real underlying question or no real issue that I've seen push more people away from the faith or give more people a distorted view of God than this question right here that has to do with the wall. Here's the question. Did God cause the wall? Some of you are like, I don't know, I care about that. I've never thought of that before. But others of you, this has been your hang-up. Did God cause the wall? You were going through some sort of great evil. And some well-meaning Christian, and they were well-meaning, but some well-meaning Christian came into the hospital room, they called you on the phone, they showed up at at your house, and they said, look, I know this is really hard and it really stinks, but this is actually a gift from God. It's a gift from him. And you're like, this is not a gift from God. Or like, God, God's brought this to your life and I can't wait to see what he brings out of it. And you're like, okay, if God's brought this to my life, if there's like some sort of transcendent being out there who would allow evil to happen to me or make evil happen in my life in order to make me love him more, I don't know if I like that, that God. This has been me before. This is a question that I've asked. I guarantee you it's a question that some of you have asked. Them. Did God cause the wall. It's a good question. Now, let's talk theologically about it for just a second. Here's my answer. Uh, it depends. <laughs> it depends. It depends. Here's the question that I would ask you. Is the wall evil or is it just really, really hard? It depends. Because if the wall is evil, I don't think God caused it. But 
if it's really, really hard, if it's really, really challenging, well, sometimes God challenges us. Sometimes they're just challenging seasons of life, and so maybe he did bring that on you. But there's a big difference. So which is it? Is it evil, or is it just really, really hard? There was a time in, in, um, in our life where Lindsay and I went through this. Particularly her. I asked her if I could share this story. She, she said yes, because it's one of the more inspiring examples for me personally in my life. So in 2011, when we started interviewing for the Northeast position, um, I didn't have a whole lot of experience, and so I didn't think there was any way I would get the job. I had a professor say, apply for it. Just, you know, what the heck? Bob Cherry's great. The church is great. But I didn't know Bob. I didn't know Northeast, so I just applied and, and thought I'd get eliminated early on. But then one interview turned to two, turned to three, turned to four. And before you know it, like reality started to set in for Lindsay and I. We might get this. And that was a, a little difficult for me at first, a little disorienting, because we loved Cincinnati. I had a job there that I really liked at a church that we really, really liked. We had deep friendships. So it was a bit hard for me to wrap my mind around it. But it's a great job and a great church. And I was like, how in the world am I getting this? So I got my mind wrapped around it pretty quickly. But for Lindsay, it was even more difficult for her. She had her dream job in Cincinnati. At that point, she'd been living there for six years. Her closest friends in life were there, like college roommates. And she loved our church there too. Lindsay and I had been married for less than a year at that point. So she was going to have to rip up her whole life in order to follow my calling. What if my calling's not her calling? These were the things we were struggling and wrestling with. Now, I remember when they eventually offered me the job, she, in tears, said, I think this is God's will for us. I don't know if I want it. <laughs> I think this is God's will for us. And, and we took the position. And I remember even for some of the next couple of weeks as we prepared to move, she was sad. But she was faithful. See, here's the beautiful thing about it. I think she would tell you today, we've talked about this before, this was a season where God was teaching her to give up control and trust. Sometimes God calls us to the unknown, right? And you just gotta give up control and trust. Sometimes God challenges us so that we might give up control and trust. The silver lining on the story is that when we moved here, we hadn't been in our apartment for more than a day when she got a job interview. It was a connection through a lady in the church. She's a wonderful lady. She got a job interview at Mercy Academy for their, teaching, uh, their music teaching position, and they hired her on the same day. So all of a sudden, she had a calling. To, like, this is what, now this was what you were doing, God. And she served there for eight years and loved it. It was, exact, it was a sweet spot kind of job for her. But in that liminal space between we accept, us accepting the job and her getting her job at Mercy, it was, it was not easy. But God taught us trust. In Hebrews chapter 12, Scripture calls this um, discipline from our Heavenly Father. It's interesting. It says, uh, since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us. So that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And we have found this to be true in our own lives. Sometimes the wall you face is just 
hard. But God can grow you through that. Now, on the flip side, though, sometimes the wall you face is downright evil. And I want you to know that when those evil walls come, I don't believe those are gifts from God. COVID-19 was not a gift from God. The death of a child is not a gift from God. A cancer diagnosis is not a gift from God. Here's the biblical reality. Sometimes God does not get what he wants. You know that, right? Now, okay, in the grand scheme of history, God will get what he wants. He's bending the macro arc of history to his determined end now. But in all the micro moments of human history, God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven in every moment. Sometimes evil happens. So how do we reconcile that? Quick little theological argument for you, all right? This is, what, this is how I would reconcile it. Okay, first, we gotta understand God's not evil. According to scripture, God is love. Essentially at his core, he is love. All he do is love. First John 4 says God is love. And how is love defined? Well, we see it when God hangs on the cross for us. It's cross-shaped. This is who God is. This is what he does. He loves. Now, that means that when God created human and spiritual beings, which we believe he created both, there's sort of two dimensions, a, a, physical, and a, material, a physical and a spiritual dimension out there. When he created human and spiritual beings, he did it in order to share his love. That's what he does. He always acts in love. So that being said, big point here, for love to be possible... God had to give us the freedom to choose it. Now, some of you heard me made this argument before, but it's important. There is no such thing as true love if you can't choose love. If you force someone to love you, that's abuse. If you hardwire someone to love you, that's a robot. And we are not robots, and God is not an abuser. Some of y'all tried to force someone to love you in high school, and you got friend-zoned. <laughs> them, them blocked on MySpace. Remember that day? Y'all know what MySpace is? You heard of this before? <laughs> Let me tell you about my Charlotte Hornet starter jacket and MTV, okay? No. Um, so, yeah. What are we? Okay. Robots. So, look God, look, God had to give us the freedom to choose love if we actually are, are going to be in a love relationship with him. Now, that being said, back to our, our, our little slide here. Our freedom to choose love is also freedom not to choose love. The freedom to love is also the freedom to rebel. God actually had to delegate to us real authority over our lives and then go hands off and say, you can do with it what you want to. And I would suggest to you that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of evil and rebellious choices by both human and spiritual beings, which we have no idea how they impact the world around us, right? Thousands of years of evil decisions from us have created a lot of evil around us that impact us day in and day out. Now, this is where the beauty of the Christian God comes in, though. Because this is what I believe about God. Big point here. Rather than using his power to take our free will away when it goes bad, you know what God does? So we see it on the cross and in the empty tomb. God actually uses his love to renew our free will when it goes bad. Let me say that to you again. Rather than using his power to take our free will when it goes bad, God uses his love to renew our free will when it goes bad. And I would just remind you, look at Jesus because this is what we see there. On the cross, we see the ultimate evil and the ultimate injustice happening to the ultimate innocent. And yet from that, we see the ultimate victory. The empty tomb casts a retrospective light backwards on the cross, proving that love wins. The promise of the Christian God 
is that God is so all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, and most essentially all-loving that he is never outsmarted. He is never caught off guard. He is so wise. He can anticipate every eventuality and as life happens, real time, lovingly make the best of it as he bends our stories and human history to the glorious future of his will. That's the beauty of the Christian God. And I'll tell you, last point on this, that's, that's very different than the way other worldviews and other world religions process adversity. Okay, so just quick, quick worldviews lessons here. Uh, when it comes to processing adversity, I would say most worldviews and most world religions fall in one of three buckets that are different than the one I just described to you. Uh, the first one's karma. Heard of karma? Yeah. Karma is the idea that if you're facing suffering and adversity, you earned it. Goes around, comes around. Whatever you're facing, you earned it earlier in life, in a past life, not sure, but, but you earn it. The, the idea here is that suffering is fair. So get your arms wrapped around the idea that you earned it. You'll find this belief in uh, uh, many Eastern religions. You'll also find this belief in this sort of like secular, spiritual but not religious, uh, re- you know, Western way of looking at God where they talk about the universe a lot. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I'm gonna put some positive vibes, positive vibes, positive vibes, positive vibes into the universe. And if I put the positive vibes in, then I'll get the positive vibes back, right? It's karma. That's one way of looking at adversity and suffering. Another way is to see it as an illusion, an illusion. So it's the second big bucket. Suffering is a state of mind that can be overcome through self-control. All it takes is us mastering our appetites and then we won't suffer anymore. It's an illusion. Again, this is uh, really popular in, in many Eastern religions. It's also really popular in the Western religion that I would call the power of positive thinking. You ever heard of that one? Uh, third way to deal with adversity is uh, by just looking at it as fate. Fate. It's the idea that adversity is out of your control. Don't try and explain it because you can't. Just endure it. And any honest atheist would tell you that this is what their worldview demands. We're kind of like this purposeless, meaningless sort of ball of decaying matter. And so like, you're not a, you are not a unique snowflake. You're just math. Life doesn't really matter. This is also what, by the way, uh, many uh, Muslims and Christians believe. It's fate. Your suffering is the inscrutable will of Allah. It's the predestined will of Yahweh God. So just accept it and deal with it. I think it's a really, really bad take when real evil strikes our life. There's a better way to see it. There's a better way to process the wall. There's a better way to go through it. Now, that's what I wanna transition to the rest of our time. I wanna give you two practical strategies, or what you might even call metrics, that will help you measure if you're moving through the wall or maybe even if you're getting to the other side of it. I think these will help you, all right? Want to move quickly? Take notes quickly. I'll give you a review slide at the end. Strategy metric number one. How do I know I'm moving through the wall? Strategy, strategy number one. It's intimacy with God. Are you guys doing all right out there? Feels a little bit like a fire hose right now. You good? Okay, all right. I feel like I always do that, though, so it's just welcome to Northeast. All right, so intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. How do you know you're moving through it? If you're growing intimacy with him. By the way, this is what God wants from you more than anything else, is intimacy with him. So maybe you could turn these dashes into questions. Are you feeling closer to God? 
Are you spending more time with God? Are you experiencing the sort of peace that passes understanding or a joy that transcends your crummy circumstances or a love that goes deeper than the insecurities that your crummy circumstances might, might be sort of birthing into your life? If you're experiencing that sort of intimacy, chances are you're moving through the wall well because God wants to cultivate intimacy with you. Now, these aren't just strategies, by the way. These are metrics. And these aren't just metrics. These are strategies. You can strategize them into your life and then measure them. I just really want to get this across today. This is God's main desire, to experience intimacy with you. He, he wants this. He wants you. Now, in our individualistic culture, we are taught that an individual's worth is based on an individual's achievement. You're taught that your value is based on what you do and what you can produce. And so, because we breathe in this odorless gas every day, this is also co-opted American Christianity. And we've come to believe that the best Christians out there are the ones who are world changers, the ones who really make a difference, the ones who've got big Twitter followings and write the book or stand on the big stage or whatever it may be. But I want to just go ahead and tell you that, that the, the long line of celebrity pastor and leader failures proves that intimacy with God is not necessarily measured by, by how big your platform is or by how much you change the world. Those may be good measures of effectiveness, they're not measures of faithfulness, though. Sky Jathani wrote this recently. It's really good. Uh, he said, to be clear, God does not need you. He wants you. He did not send his son to recruit you to change the world. He sent his son to reconcile you to himself. So your value to God is in your uh, it's not in your effectiveness, but in your presence with him. Love that. Now, how do we cultivate presence with him? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about rule of life and disciplines of disengagement later in this series. But let me just read a few of these off to you, okay? Because these are some of the ways that we go. I call them disciplines of disengagement. Disengagement. These are some of the ways we cultivate intimacy with God. Uh, scripture, study, silence, solitude, prayer, rest, Sabbath, simplicity, play, body care. All of these, notice, are less about adding things to your life and more about stepping back from the craziness of everyday life in order to just be, rest, see, listen to him. That's how you cultivate intimacy. That is an important strategy and metric as you move through the wall. Here's the second one. Surrender. Intimacy with God, that's the first one. Surrender to God. That's the second one. Now, there are a few dimensions to surrender here, so I just want to kind of briefly run through those here real quick. How do, you, how do I know I'm surrendering to God, Tyler? It seems kind of nebulous. All right, well, first, a greater level of brokenness. A greater level of brokenness. What, is, what does brokenness mean? Okay, well, Jesus tells this interesting uh, uh, preaches this interesting sermon in Luke chapter 6. It's kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, but it's a bit different. Some scholars call it the Sermon on the Plain. In it, he gives his own little list of beatitudes here and woes to his disciples. This is what he says to his disciples. He says, God blesses you who are, uh, put, the, put this slide up there, poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. 
Now, to be honest, I don't think I want to be blessed anymore, Jesus, okay? But like, this is what he says. It's kind of disorienting when you read it. For the record, there's nothing especially holy about being poor, hungry, sad, or hated. But I think the thread that ties all four of these together is if you find yourself in this circumstance or situation of life, you are utterly dependent on God. And that's what he wants from us all the time, not just in our lone moments where it feels like we have no control, but even in our high moments where we think we're in control. We're not. He wants dependence. Like, have you ever been in a moment where uh, you didn't know where the next meal on the table was coming from? You were truly poor and hungry? That's a moment of great dependence where you actually mean it when you pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Ever been in a moment where you got a diagnosis where you're like, only God can heal this? Or you lost someone that you love and you're like, only God can bring me through this. That is a moment of utter loss of control and dependence on him. Ever been in a moment where you're hated and you didn't feel like you had any friends and the only person that listened to you is God? Total dependence, right? This is what Jesus wants from us always. Always. You know, it's interesting. The creation story teaches us two truths. We love to remember the first one. Two truths about humanity. Uh, the first one is uh, that we're created in God's image, which means we have amazing potential as human beings. But the second one is, is that we are made from the dust. And because of sin to dust, we shall return someday. That Richard Rohr uh, wrote that uh, there are five essential biblical truths that we often forget in our pride. I'm gonna read them to you real quick. He says, life's hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. And one day you're going to die. Now, sounds like the sort of chap that I'd like to have brunch with, right? But, but you, you get what he's getting at here, right? In Luke chapter 18, on a spiritual level, Jesus tells this parable. It says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, I'm not like those other people, the cheaters, the sinners, the adulterers. Certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Did you impressed, God? But the tax collector, Jesus said, stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he prayed, Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, this is the true sinner's prayer right here. Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And commenting on this, Jesus says, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, the sinner returned home justified before God. Why? Because those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I wonder what would change about us about our spirituality and connection with God if we would pray that every day. Third dynamic of surrender is a greater appreciation for, uh, for I think this is a second, greater appreciation for holy unknowing, holy unknowing. Uh, what's holy unknowing? Okay, uh, it's you getting to a place where you're okay with the fact that you are not going to know, understand, or even always agree with God's will in your life. Are you okay with that? Have you gotten there yet? Because if you are, you're moving through the wall. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, Paul says, Oh, how great are God's riches in wisdom and knowledge. 
How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and ways. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? You hear the sarcasm here? No one is what he's saying. For everything comes from him and exists by his power. It's intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Augustine uh, said it like this. Fourth century, he said, if you understand, it's not God. But you understand. Thomas Aquinas wrote one of the longest and greatest theological works ever. 13th century said this at the beginning. This is the ultimate knowledge about God. To know that we do not know. So look, point is, you can't expect God to bow to your reason all the time. Look, if you're a Christian, by the way, you already accept big points of like mystery in your faith. For example, the Trinity, three equals one. Explain that one. The incarnation, fully God yet fully human at the same time. Scripture, inspired by God, but also written by people. Christian living, you're supposed to be full of grace and truth. Or here's some questions that I've heard recently. Why is God hidden? If God's both loving and all-powerful, then why does evil still exist? Or I got this one from my son Palmer this week. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet, Dad? Great question. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know his mind. Now, the last one, though, is the one that we really all want to know. What's God's will for my life? What is it? There's always going to be a level of uncertainty. There are moments of clarity, but there's always going to be a level of uncertainty. And that's the problem. We've got to know. I've got to know where God's taking me and when he's taking me there and how he's going to get me there. Look, you don't own God. And the second you give that up is the second a trust, a deep sense of trust and holy unknowing grows in your heart. And with that comes peace. Third dynamic here of surrender is a deeper ability to wait for God. Wait for God. Can you wait? Tell you what, in our achievement-oriented, lean management, maximize productivity, crazy, busy, weave in and out of traffic on the way to work while also answering emails, while also eating breakfast, 80-hour work week, culture where our kids are in activities every single night, I ain't got time to wait on nobody. And yet, that's the beauty of the wall. When you go through the wall, God breaks something deep in you. And it's that. It's that driving, grasping, fearful self that must produce. And it forces us to surrender to his timing. Last dynamic here of surrender. A greater detachment. A greater level of detachment. So Augustine had this interesting idea. He said the reason why most of us sin isn't because we love uh, bad things too much. It's because we love good things too much. You know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, God's supposed to be our supreme love, so we have to order our loves. And most of our problems is that we take good things like work, like money, power, uh, sex, influence, whatever it may be, good things that can enrich our lives, family, friendships, whatever, and, and we put them on the throne of our lives. And so they destroy us over time. If the last two years has taught us nothing, and you've heard me say this before, it's that the secular saviors that we've been looking to to save us are f- total frauds. 
medicine, science, and technology. I'm so thankful for the advances in that. It saved a lot of lives, but it's still not to a place to where it could prevent hundreds of thousands of deaths and a subsequent lockdown. Wealth, the economy, prosperity. We like to pretend that we've got safety in our savings accounts until COVID comes along and crashes it and then takes our job and then closes all the places that we want to spend. Politics, politicians, political platforms. Man, if you haven't realized yet that those are poor saviors and politics is a bad religion, you are not, you, you are probably not on social media, so good for you. You just, you just keep doing you. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. Maybe the reason why none of our politicians can, can be honest with us or, or admit wrong is because we're expecting them to be saviors. And how can I ever admit wrong if I'm supposed to be a God? So look, Paul says it like this in Philippians 4.10. We read it at the beginning. I'll read it here at the end. It's how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was, at ever, uh, that I was ever in need. Here's the key. He says, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is uh, with the full stomach or empty, with plenty or a little, for I can, okay, and the, you guys have heard this one before, Philippians 4.13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Now look, there has never been a Bible verse more stripped out of its context and abused than Philippians 4.13. Paul is not saying that you, can do all, you cannot do all things through Christ who gives you strength. I'm sorry. Watch this. I'm going to fly through Christ who gives me strength. <laughs> Didn't work. Hey, do you want a better job? Hey, do you want a better love life? Hey, do you want to play better in your ball game today? I've got an idea. Philippians 4.13, write it on your eye black, wear a necklace with it on it, or like put it on your undershirt, get a tattoo with it, and also have a coffee mug with the scripture on it, and then you can do all things through Christ. Look, no, this is a prison letter, y'all. Paul is writing Philippians from prison. And what he's reminding us is that he's capable of fighting contentment in the midst of any suffering, in the face of any wall, because of Christ who gives him strength. That's, that's the true context of the verse. That's the promise of the verse. And you can hear in it a greater detachment of this world and a total attachment to Jesus. It's what we all need. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Come on. And the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of... Yeah. And that's what he's after. And that's what we should be after. So a quick review. I'm going to put all those back up there. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to transition into communion in just a moment. But I want you to take just a minute of silence and reflection. And I want you to look at some of these strategies, some of these metrics, moving through the wall. And I want you to self-evaluate. Maybe there's one that stood out to you. 
Maybe you just need to go through these one at a time and ask God to either magnify them in your life or break you for them. Or maybe for the first time, you just need to take a moment to give God your wall you never had before. You're here. You're here. You got nowhere else to be. Take a moment. Rest in him. Allow him to speak to you in this moment if he might. And then together we'll partake of communion.